sharing work of Shaquille Chaudhuri and Animal Leadership, educate and invite individuals, organizations, and communities to overcome othering in profound ways. And before I tell you what is my personal connection to that, I want to uh, um, share with you a short video about the book that Shaquille is launching. And this is actually the international launching of this book, which I'm really excited because it's happening in Madison. <laughs> right? So the book itself is called Deep Diversity, Becoming, Over, Overcoming Us Versus Them. So let's just look at this video, and then I'll tell you a couple more words, and then we'll have Shaquille himself here on the stage. Thank you. What if our interactions with other people are influenced by things happening below the radar of awareness, hidden even from ourselves? My name is Shaquille Chaudhry and I'm the author of Deep Diversity, Overcoming Us Versus Them. A number of very troubling stories have been in the media. The impact of residential schools on generations of Aboriginal peoples. The shooting of unarmed black men and youth by police in the context of the United States. And the murder of journalists, the staff at Charlie Hebdo in Paris. All three of these examples demonstrate the escalating nature of us versus them, especially around issues of identity and race. My latest book, Deep Diversity, Overcoming Us Versus Them, explores this question and argues that us versus them, in fact, is a normal, if not unfortunate, part of the human condition. The book seeks to reframe the debate about racism and systemic discrimination in a practical, scientific, and compassionate manner. Deep diversity is a culmination of 20 years of experience teaching and learning with thousands of people across four continents one emotional burnout in my early 30s, and a childhood in small-town Canada pretending I was white. This book is as much about my mistakes and failings as it is about my successes and learnings. The problem today is, in fact, subtle or systemic discrimination. But this concept is, by nature, very abstract and difficult to talk about. I mean, the only way it becomes visible is when we look at data and look at the experience of thousands of people, and then start asking questions about why there's gaps, why there's gaps in the treatment in healthcare, or in education, or in the criminal justice system. Systemic discrimination is pervasive across society. It is in all organizations and institutions. This is a conversation all of us need to be part of, and you're invited into that with Deep Diversity. Um, I was 22 years old, and I was a very young and a very passionate social activist um, that had just launched a small non-for-profit in Bolivia. Um, there's many things I can say about 
what that meaning meant for my life and how that has actually uh, had a connection with why am I right here right now and as part of the YWCA Madison as well. Uh, but something that keeps coming back to me is actually the awareness of that to do the work we do, because it is about restoring our common sense of humanity, we need to practice a plurality grounded interconnectedness-minded, amazing kind of love and compassion for each other. And I think that is the best legacy I could have received uh, from the work of Shaquille Children in Animal Leadership. Um, so I'm really excited to introduce you to Shaquille, and I'm going to let him walk you through some of the concepts and the work of his life, his story, um, and, uh, yeah, and then for all the good that this could be. So if Shaquille, you can come to stage and be with us. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for having me here. First of all, thank you to Jerry. It has been such a lovely uh, coincidence and opportunity that we've been able to reconnect. I'd also like to thank Colleen Butler, uh, as well as Rachel Krinsky and the YWCA for inviting me here. I'm just thrilled. I mean, there is just no better place than the Racial Justice Summit to launch this book called Deep Diversity. And... Um, for the short time that I'm here with you, what I'd like to do is tell you a little bit about what the book is. Uh, also, um, maybe read a couple of excerpts and then maybe take some questions at the end. How's that sound for folks? Is that all right? All right. So the title is Deep Diversity Overcoming Us Versus Them. And um, my purpose is really to help expand this conversation around race and identity and discrimination because it's, of course, not easy. And in terms of the style of the book, if this means anything to anybody, it's a little bit like taking Malcolm Gladwell and racial justice and stick them in a blender. <laughs> and then you get something that feels like my book. Um, the best way to explain what the book is about is really with a story. And let me preface the story by connecting to the, some of the work that was discussed this morning um, by, the, by our friends from the Perception Institute. And that is that stereotypes and bias can literally affect and distort what we hear, see, and experience. And yet, what the research shows is that stereotypes and bias and prejudice are, in fact, common brain functioning. This is how we perceive, categorize, learn, and remember. So, a lot of my work take me, takes me into organizations, and I was working with a large public sector organization in the greater Toronto area, which is hometown for me. And there was changeover, and I was told that the new contact person for me in this organization was a white guy with a disability. Now, so I went to meet him. His name's Mike, and we planned out the year. Great guy. We got along really well. And uh, I also noticed the, the paraplegia in his legs and noticed the wheelchair and I didn't see him again for a couple of months and the next time I did I was in this kind of situation I was fiddling with a microphone getting set up uh, to do a presentation he invited me in to work with the staff and I look over 
and I see Mike walking towards me. And I'm completely shocked because I didn't know that his wheelchair was optional. And so I, I said that to him, I said, Mike, I didn't know you didn't always use your wheelchair. And he looked at me and he kind of smiled with a slight bit of confusion on his face and said, Shaquille, I don't have a wheelchair. I've never had a wheelchair. Okay, so now I'm really, really confused because that whole meeting, there was a wheelchair there. (laughs) And then this very uncomfortable memory emerges. I recall the original meeting, and then I remember Mike actually greeting me at the entrance and walking me to the meeting room. And it was then that I had noticed the irregular gait in his legs. But the stereotype of man with disability equals wheelchair was so pervasive and so strong in my head that I ended up, my mind ended up replacing fact with fiction. And that is the power of the stereotype of bias and prejudice, that this is how automatically, easily, quickly it can just kind of emerge. Now, if we don't develop the skills for detecting early our bias in low cost situations, then under stress and time limits, the consequences may be more grave. I created a wheelchair where there was none, and the cost was personal embarrassment. However, in their interactions with black men, police officers may be seeing threat, danger, and hostility where there is none. And as we've seen, the consequences can be tragic. So none of us is immune to this. Not even those of us whose life work involves looking at issues of diversity and inclusion. This is a drawback uh, of the human mind. And both the conscious and unconscious dimensions of it. And we need to understand the conscious and unconscious dimensions of it. Because doing so may give us just a little bit more control. So I like the metaphor of the rider and the elephant to refer to the conscious mind, the unconscious mind. This is created by researcher Jonathan Hyde. And I like it because, well, A, the conscious mind is the thinking, rational, uh, executive control functions part of ourselves. And the unconscious is the intuitive, the emotional, the automatic. And why I like this metaphor is it immediately speaks the size mismatch between the two. Because if there's ever a tug of war between our rider and our elephant, we know who wins. And we'll get into a bit more of this, but... Uh, Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever made anything that's like a New Year's Eve resolution. (laughs) Right? Ryder comes up with a great idea, but it's the elephant that's responsible for long-term implementation. (laughs) That's why, if you've had the unfortunate experience of that New Year's Eve resolution only lasting like a few weeks, a few days, a couple hours because it was coffee, (laughs) then you know what I'm talking about. Now... Research shows 
that our brains will frequently register people that are racially different than us more like objects than people. As a result, we may treat them with less empathy. And fundamentally, there may be subtle ways in which we actually treat them as less human. Now, my book uses research from a variety of fields and argues that for the sake of fairness, for the sake of justice, for the sake of democracy, we all must work to uncover our unconscious biases, our preferences and our attitudes. In this way, we are all in the same boat, regardless of if we are white, whether we are racial minority, whether we are indigenous, whether we identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, it does not matter. We are all in the same boat with this part of the part of the problem. And this is where compassion comes in. This is part of the human condition and understanding how our mind works, as I said, can give us a little bit of an advantage, an important advantage in tackling these problems that create such a divide. Now, one of the themes of this conference is also how to look after ourselves while we try to change a world filled with injustice. So I offer another thing to consider, and that's this, that the very frameworks that we use may, in fact, impact our psychological health. What I mean is that any viewpoint, any perspective we use uh, to understand the world comes with its strengths as well as its drawbacks. And this is especially true if you're involved in social justice work, where we are completely tuned into issues of power, privilege and marginalization. So I need to back up on this a little bit to explain. I started off my mid-20s and identified myself as an anti-racist educator. I was on the far left of the political spectrum. And when I was first exposed to the data that demonstrated how minority groups, whether it's based on race, gender, class, sexual orientation, and so on, that minority status meant that groups were mistreated, uh, treated less fairly in society sometimes under service and sometimes over-policed. When I first discovered this information, it completely transformed me. And uh, it also helped me make sense of my life. That all the things that happened to me growing up weren't entirely my fault, including that deep desire that I had to believe that I was white. So the structural analysis, uh, the structural analysis of power did what it's supposed to do. It empowered me. That's its strength. But over time, I also discovered the opposite. That this same lens can also disempower if we're not careful. So I'm going to read you this little excerpt from my book. That illustrates what I'm talking about. Although the goal of a structural power analysis to assist in liberation and emancipation, it can, like a double-edged sword, cut both ways and fuel a sense of despair. This is what happened to me and was very common amongst my social justice peers. We valued quote-unquote critical thinking, but that pretty much meant offering critiques exclusively from the left side of the political spectrum. Avoid purchasing coffee, books, and clothing from large corporations. Globalization's bad. The Olympics are a waste of time and resources, and all corporate media is about pro-conservative views, and of course, all the problems in the world are created by straight white men. <laughs> we were out of the box. We were alternative, organic, frequently vegetarian. 
We were on the side of justice and we held the moral high ground, at least from our own perspective. We brought our quote unquote critical perspective everywhere we went. At dinner parties, any statement could be turned into a political moment to educate others. It could be a comment about the food we were eating, the dishwashing soap we were using, or critiques of mainstream, mainstream politics. We could critique and therefore rain on anyone's parade, including our own. <laughs> I didn't realize what was happening, but pessimism and disapproval were becoming my close friends. Unaware that the dial on my negativity bias was stuck on high, I'd lost the ability to distinguish critical from cynical. After all, we were surrounded by all forms of corporate something or other, be that corporate media, corporate politics, corporate agriculture. It was a bit of a bunker mentality in the trenches of social activism. We were a minority and power was not in our favor. We wanted the world to be beautiful, but our words and actions communicated that was mostly ugly. As it said, what we look for, we find. And for me, life looked pretty gray. The critical lens I'd adopted eventually helped me burn out emotionally. It wasn't the only factor, but it certainly gets a nod for best supporting actor in a comedy that is my life. Reflecting on this now, I've come to realize that the way we think about things, the lenses we use, also become neurologically wired and form into habits. When the same lens is used regularly, over and over again, especially, for example, in social uh, activism and academics, we can almost lose choice in how we view the world. Just as privilege often begets privilege, the opposite can also happen. If we are immersed in issues of marginalization, it's hard not to see marginalization everywhere. Unless we are aware of this particular trap, we may, on the way to empowerment, inadvertently enhance our sense of victimization. They are, after all, flip sides of the same coin. So, I burned out. And I walked away from the activist communities, which I was really committed to and admired. But burning out may have been the best thing that could have happened to me. It set me on a path of figuring things out of self-healing and through the support of trusted friends, mentors, counseling and coaching. Over time, I began to realize that the elements of dysfunction in my life had a common theme. One common reoccurring troubled person. This guy. Once I realized that I was my biggest problem, that it was my choices, my actions and reactions that got me messed up and into difficult situations, Many things began to change. My outlook began to alter and to become more hopeful. I began to understand a critical lesson taught by the wise elders like His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Although we rarely control our circumstances, we always have choice on how to react to our circumstances. This allowed me to start searching for new strategies and solutions. I was more open to learning and I didn't feel like I needed to have all the answers. I started exploring frameworks over time period that range from emotional intelligence, psychology, social science, neuroscience, organizational change, as well as mindfulness practice. Mind you, this did not happen in the first month. Just to be clear, this led to the, and this eventually led to the development of the deep diversity framework, which integrates this new learning with social justice frameworks from my past. Now, over time, what I've just come to conclude, you know, working with people, staying in front of groups, organizations, working on the ground and communities, is that the problems we are faced with around oppression, around systemic discrimination, around racism and sexism and homophobia and so on, these are not cognitive in nature. 
They're not up here. I mean, there's no shortage of good ideas about how to create inclusion. There's no shortage of good ideas about how to create more fairness in society. So the blocks aren't here. The blocks are down here at the emotional level, at the elephant level. And we've got to recognize whatever strategies we develop, in fact, integrate head and heart. Because right now, a lot of the strategies we tend to use tend to be really head-based. And that's kind of like throwing a drowning man a fire extinguisher. It's the wrong tool for the task. When the problem is emotional, when the problem is down here, we've also got to develop solutions that take that into account because that's really important in this work. Identity is never rational for any of us, regardless of what our identities are. So, so you know, it's interesting. The same thing happens to me up here that happens to me in workshops, which is like that little clicker I keep losing, and I'm like in a one-foot radius of where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> this, is, this is amazing. Oh, look, it's hiding over here. All right. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Um, so, to make visible systemic discrimination, to make visible things that are um, more subtle, the deep diversity framework, in fact, um, gets us to explore four factors. Um, the first is emotions, and that emotions are invisible and controlling, and they impact all human interactions with or without our awareness. And that especially issues of identity, as I said, are not rational. They're deeply emotional. The second area is, of course, implicit bias, which we talked about this morning, a form of hidden prejudice that we all have. The third is the idea of tribes and that our identities and belonging to group is a core driver of human behavior, as basic as food, water, shelter. And our desire to belong to groups means that there's groups that we don't belong to, and that creates what's known as in-groups and out-groups. And then the last is power, socioeconomic, political. And this basically entrenches in society dominant groups or majority groups and non-dominant groups and minority groups. And this is the case all over the world in every society it's ever been studied in. So I'll be exploring some of these themes in more depth in the uh, breakout workshops, and uh, I hope you'll join me for those. Now, deep diversity also places relationships and relationship building at the heart of the model, and I think this is really key. To paraphrase... Um, Organizational psychologist Ron Short, relationships are the heart and soul of any organization's ability to get anything done, whether it's a formal organization or an informal organization. And it's, the, uh, it's in fact the DNA of any group of people that want to work together. But we can be so focused on the urgency of our work, especially when we're taking on something as heroic and as intergenerational a problem as racism, that we can become so urgent in our work that we can actually ignore the people relationships that are required to get the work done. And that's where we have to refocus, I believe, our energies. Now, my book also outlines some skills because this is not cognitive in nature. In fact, we need competencies here. We need to actually develop some competencies in, in some specific areas that all are about who we are as people. And this is self-awareness. The ability to tune into our own uh, uh, needs and feelings. Looking at 
self-regulation, the ability to monitor ourselves, especially when things get difficult, when there's stress, when there's crisis, when there's pressure. Empathy, the ability to tune into the feelings and needs of other people. And generally, relationship building, and uh, that includes conflict skills, is really important in this work. Self-education, because so much of this is about taking responsibility for ourselves and learning. And then the last part is meaning-making, which is the idea of how do we put all this work into perspective? How do I make sense of something that can be so brutal and killing systematically as racism? And can I see the ugliness and brutality of the world while I'm also able to see the beauty in the world? Can I do all those things? How do I make meaning of, of all this? Uh, so, so that's a big part of the journey as well, I believe. Now, the deep diversity tools and framework can be used regardless of whether we are white, whether we're racial minorities, or whether we identify as indigenous and aboriginal. Some parts of this journey to eliminate racism means that we are all in the same boat. For example, regarding unconscious bias. We all have to work that out for ourselves. But it's also important to recognize that some parts of the journey are not the same. And deep diversity offers white people, people with privilege, a way to enter this conversation without shame or blame. And also to help take some responsibility for and become allies. It also helps racial minorities and indigenous peoples um, to think about and work with tools to deal with racism right now. The impacts of it on us, on our bodies in this moment, because structural change is intergenerational. It's slow. It takes a long time. And so what can we do right now to deal with these things? And that's all of this is actually inner work. And uh, and it's work that is uh, using the inner resources we have. And, I, and when I say inner resources and inner work, you know, um, I don't want people to disappear into into the land of thinking about, oh, OK, welcome to the meditation center. Um, although meditation is an important part of this work, um, it's actually about it's also recognizing that it's, in fact, what lots of people do all the time. Right. So uh, if I'm a high end athlete, I do all kinds of inner work to get myself ready to be prepared, to be centered. If I'm a performer, I also have to do the same thing. How do I learn to manage myself and manage all my emotions so I can be the best I can be? And this is something that all of us need to do, but we especially need to do it when we're doing the work that we're doing. So lots of this involves bringing head strategies with heart strategies and there's tools and all this is, is really important. And when we bring this into place, great hope is in fact possible. And let me illustrate this point with a concluding excerpt from my book. And I'll preface uh, this final reading by saying that uh, our team had been invited to the Netherlands, commonly referred to as Holland by many people, in the years following 9-11. And the conversations around race and immigration and social cohesion was at a peak. And this is also where Jerry and I met a couple of years after this event took place. Uh, at that time period, the filmmaker Theo Van Gogh um, an outspoken critic of uh, Muslims and Islam was actually murdered in the streets of Amsterdam by a radical uh, Muslim and the public conversations were fierce and ugly. So we designed a two week leadership development program with a focus on peace building and intercultural dialogue uh, and about 70 very diverse group of young leaders came from around the country. And 
we develop both head and heart skills, uh, ways to think about the world, uh, but skills to communicate, work with our own triggers. I hear the word triggers a lot, but, you know, we don't actually talk about how do we manage our triggers. We don't just say the word trigger. We actually, there's actually tools and strategies on how to do that. We need, and we equip people with those kinds of things. And so head and heart skills, strategies, this was the precursors to the deep diversity framework. And we've been doing this program. It had been um, the tail end of the two weeks, and this was the second last day of the program. This is where my book kicks in. The second that last day of the program, however, was July 7th, 2005. And just as our community day was wrapping up, we received breaking news that the London Underground, less than an hour's flight from where we were, had been bombed. The world would later learn that four homegrown terrorists targeted the busy transit system with suicide bombs, killing 52 civilians along with themselves, injuring about 700 people. At the moment the news broke, we knew few details, only destruction, smoke, death, and the suspicions of a terrorist attack. Our staff team struggled with what to do. We had limited media access in that remote location, and most of the Parsons did not even know the event had occurred, but some did. We were worried that this news would derail everything we'd worked towards over the last two weeks. It would kill the spirit and likely split our community on the day before we were to depart. A terrible way to end the program. Our team, however, felt there was little choice. We had to share with the group what had happened and let the cards fall where they may. We gathered all 70 young leaders and I apprehensively shared the news about London. Not knowing how else to proceed, we simply just opened the floor to comments. Rehana, a Moroccan Muslim, despaired. 9-11 is happening again. Everyone in the room implicitly understood her fear of an anti-Islamic backlash. As she wept, others nearby placed their hands on her, offering support. A young white woman, Ingrid, shared that her sister was in London and was not responding to calls on her cell phone. Fearing the worst, Ingrid raced out of the room in tears. Remarkably, she was followed by Alicia, a young black woman who went to comfort her. I say remarkably because these two women have been at loggerheads for the entire program, occupying opposing views on how racial minorities should or should not be, quote-unquote, integrated into Dutch society. I thought they hated each other. Abdul Hamid, a former child soldier from East Africa, was completely distressed. His full scholarship to an Ivy League school was in jeopardy, and now he had poor chances of obtaining a visa for the U.S., Abdul Hamid's goal was to use his education to help rebuild his war-torn country and support family members who still lived there. He put his head in his hands, trying to push back the tears. A large, lumbering white guy, Alka, protectively placed an arm around Abdul Hamid's shoulders, offering silent support. And so it went on, spontaneously, without any intervention from the staff team. Participants took turns speaking from the heart, listening to each other, weeping, and offering each other what comfort they could. It was the most remarkable and generous collective act of compassion and healing I'd ever been a part of. As I walked around that evening, in many quarters I saw small lit candles and small diverse um, clusters of participants quietly talking, holding and supporting each other. It took me a while to articulate what I was witnessing and then the penny dropped. They were grieving. There was no blame or finger pointing except towards radical terrorists. There was no us and them. The loss was collective. The tragic event didn't split us along racial and religious lines as I had feared. It in fact brought us closer together. This group of participants did what all of our communities should have done. 
which was to grieve and mourn our collective losses. A public act, act of terrorism was countered by a communal act of healing. I was overcome by this experience, by the compassion and deep learning it offered. It couldn't reverse the events, but it dramatically counteracted the reactionary responses heard in much of Europe at that time. Had this been the second last day of the program, uh, sorry, had this been the second day of the program as opposed to the second last day, I'm certain this tragedy, tragedy would have had profoundly negative impacts on the sense of community. Instead, the program became a testimony to the power of relationships with the necessary head and heart skills in place at both interpersonal and intergroup levels to effectively manage conflict and develop resilience. Thank you. So, I realize, of course, that I'm completely interrupting your lunch. Um, however, I, I guess I'll just take a, a moment or two in case anyone has any questions that they'd like to ask right now. Um, I'll hold the floor open for a little bit. And, uh, and if you have some questions, great. If not, then come and talk to me on the side if you have something. So I'm just going to look around and see if there are any questions. And Jerry said that she would help out with a microphone if there were some. Um, any questions or comments that folks have? <laughs> Brandy, go ahead. I know this person, my new friend, Brandy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Indeed. I am your new friend. <laughs> I just, I just want to ask, like, as you went through these, because I hear a lot from people who have spent a lot of time in social justice and activism, how they morphed and went through different phases in their activism. Yeah. Like you said, you started off being very, like, down with everyone, you know, vegetarian, all these, you know, kind of what, you know, people say it's extreme. And I can see myself kind of going through different phrases, uh, phases as well and learning to grow and all that good stuff. But what was there ever, like, one moment? Um, I know that you said that you burnt out, like that was your, yeah. your moment. But was there... Was there a specific book that had you thinking differently? Was there something that moved you to, to include or be okay or more comfortable with the more conservative viewpoints or learning that you don't have to be in every place and every, you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you balance this thing? How do you balance the ugly with the beauty? That's a good question. Um, the first thing is, the first thing I thought of immediately was like, what was the moment? The moment um, that actually shifted me out of activism was right after 9-11. And uh, I had done um, a bunch of organizing, bringing together communities and, and dialogue. And I, I was in one room that someone else had organized a, a gathering. And, and there was just like all these people, all my peers, social justice peers. And everyone's in so much distress. All they could do was like fight with one another. I and mean, we got this huge thing that had happened, but because we didn't know how to manage ourselves emotionally, we just were like attacking one another than dealing with the problem, right? And so that was kind of a moment that I checked out. That's where I started going, okay, well, what's going on here? This isn't making sense to me anymore. Um, but in terms of specific things, it was, um, you know, counseling helped, you know, and just starting to realize there was a bunch of patterns that were going on in my life that, that, uh, I wasn't aware of. I mean, this is also part of the elephant, the unconscious. I mean, it's not just about what happens around bias and things like that. It's about our own selves. There's so much that happens. It's unconscious. 
and um, why we do the things we do sometimes a mystery to ourselves, um, although sometimes a bit more obvious to other people. So that helped me start thinking about things, and I started seeing that some of the very patterns that are my personal life, in fact, were playing out in my in my um, professional life. And that, for example, is around boundaries. Like I was terrible at being able to say no, right? And, uh, and so that was one area where that contributed to me burning out, right? It's just my inability to say no. And uh, I know that there's lots of folks here in the room who are caretakers who really do their job well and are the people that everyone relies on. And also, you can always, you, it's not unusual for many of us to feel the pull of like exhaustion and depletion, right? So those kind of things. And the other thing that I had was, um, I mean, there's, there's many resources out there to start thinking about that. Um, some of it was, you know, talking to elders, people who had been around this block a few times and they just were not as, not as freaked out as I was about things or not as urgent. They kind of were able to put things into perspective. And I think that's the role of eldership, right? Is to be able to offer that and be able to say, yeah, it gets ugly sometimes, right? Uh, but that this is a sprint, not a, um, this is not a sprint. This is an ultra marathon that expands, that, that runs like generations, right? So we got to be prepared for that. And so some of that is about accepting the problem. It's like, yep, that's how it is. It's ugly. Okay, but that doesn't mean you just stop there. Accepting it and then also saying, and what am I going to do to change? And then constantly in a tension between those things, acceptance and change acceptance and change because if all we did was constantly rail at everything that went wrong or bad what would we have energy left for we wouldn't be able to distinguish between what was important anymore we wouldn't know what our priorities were right so it's really important that we find that but i don't think there's a solution there's like many solutions but we discover that path by walking it and it's not linear right that's part of the self-awareness work what's what may be your paths and be very different than my path and so on so that's the that's first way that I'd, 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 uh, I'd answer that question. Thank you. All right. Any other questions or comments? Oh, yeah. one back Hi. there. Yeah. Hi. It seems like your framework is based on relationships. Is that accurate? That's right. So my question on that is what, um, in, a, in the state of Wisconsin, we are still 83 or 87% white, and I'm from a place that is all white, you know, and I live in Madison, Milwaukee now, but if that's the framework, how do we, in a place that is geographically segregated by race, but also in a, in a place like Milwaukee is, segre- you know, still, still very segregated, what, how do we generate relationships, authentic ones, with people who don't look like us, when um, there's this kind of natural and unnatural divide um, be- physically between so many people? Yeah, it's such a good question. Uh, I can't give you a complete answer, but here's how I'd start that, is that it starts by accepting our own diversity, like who we are and how we are, in fact, unique and different than other people and embracing that. Uh, Some of the things around fitting in and privilege is that everyone has got to be the same way. And I think some of it is about embracing that conversation that we're all really different. And then, you know. Start with the diversity that's most present in your space, because there is no community anywhere in North America where there isn't the right side of the track and the wrong side of the tracks. Right. There's no community in which there um, there aren't um, people who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual or trans. There's no community in which there are not people who have disabilities. Um, uh, 
physical, overt, obvious, or the hidden ones where we're dealing with mental health issues or so on. So there's all kinds of diversities that are out there. And so to me, it's about starting with what's present. And that is what we build and we nurture and we link and we integrate and interconnect with others. So to me, it, it starts there because if we can start honoring one another for, for that, then there's ways that that can, that can branch and link. And of course, then there's, a, the, you know, there's the role of bridge builders, like people in the room here. There's the role for activists. I mean, and these are long-term projects, right? These are long-term uh, consciousness raising you know, uh, processes. These are long-term um, processes we're trying to change people's habits and ways of doing things. But I think fundamentally it starts by just acknowledging there's lots of diversity. Just some of it we sometimes just frame a bit too tightly. So that's, that's where I would start that question. And then, and then we build from there. We build our movements, we build our connections, and we integrate, and we, you know, go out and come back in. And I don't know. There's always connections to, to different kinds of diversity. I just wouldn't get stuck on one. I would say that let's connect them all. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Oh, there's even one last hand there. Yeah, at the back. all the facts and figures and everything else that our educational system requires us to know and we get tested on. Uh, sorry, so is the question about, uh, about priorities in the... In the I'll, I'll start off. <laughs> How do we get our educational system to regard the kinds of things that you are talking about as being as important as facts, figures, when the last battle was, who was the general, and those kinds of issues. Right, right. Um, so we're now starting the three-day seminar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, all of these questions have such deep responses. I'm going to give you like the 30 second responses that are literally just starting points. They're not solutions. So in education, one, I actually met with a number of people from the education um, uh, sector here yesterday at the Madison Area Diversity Roundtable. And it seems like, A, build on the things that are already working, right? That's one. And then do the things that, that we've, uh, we've, we've done in the past, which is like, um, Agitate, educate, agitate, educate, those kind of things. And then it's also about um, the same kind of strategies that we would use in, in any kind of organizational change process or community change process, is you uh, target the people that might be your allies, that might be a little bit soft and might be able to kind of go, yeah, that's actually something that's important, and build relationships with them and get them to, to move into these, um, into these processes. I had an interesting conversation yesterday with, with the educators <clears throat> from here because we were comparing notes, because I come from the education system and, and I taught as a teacher and I work a lot with uh, school boards, in, uh, especially in and around my city. And uh, it seems like you folks have done um, a, a better job in terms of looking at things like hiring and promotion and things like that. Um, whereas we've done an, uh, a terrible job in that area, we, but we've done an amazing job at looking at curriculum and, and kids and schools. And so 
teachers are quite well versed in that, not as well versed in the in the other systems of change. So, um, you know, all those processes uh, ha- take time. So in Ontario, probably about six, seven years ago now, um, the 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 ministry, uh, which would be, I guess, at the, uh, the state level that you folks would have here, developed what was known as the um, the inclusive and uh, equitable education strategy. So that meant that this was something that all schools had to comply with. And it changed the conversation on some levels. It no longer was just one or two uh, individuals in a school or things like that that were moving. This was now something that all leaders had to do. So I'd say that it's it's a multi-layered process of of creating the moment in which in which people go, yeah, that's the right thing to do. And let's put some resources there. All right. So, you know what? I'm just conscious of the fact that we also need to eat lunch. and We've got other things to to uh, to um, uh, attend to after and the fabulous sessions coming up. So I'm going to say right now uh, I'll be available for questions if you want to come up here. But I just really want to say thank you for your exquisite attention and a round of applause for everybody for all the conversations. Thank you.